This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 12, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, staff writer Kelly Servick is here to talk about contact tracing apps and the difficulties of finding out whether they work as intended. Next, we have researcher Edward Greger. He's going to discuss the always controversial reintroduction of apex predators, this time from a cost-benefit perspective. Oh, and the top predators we're going to talk about? Sea otters. Now we have staff writer Kelly Servick. You may have heard a lot about contact tracing apps in the news these days, but what exactly do they do? And as Kelly is going to tell us, it's not always easy to tell if they're doing what we think they're doing. Hi, Kelly. Hi. All right. I presented a kind of maze-like structure that we're going to have to wander through here. <laughs> so let's start with what are contact tracing apps for? Yeah, so contact tracing apps are supposed to be a solution to a really big disadvantage that we're at with COVID-19, which is that it makes traditional contact tracing really hard. Typically, a health department tries to stem the spread of an infectious disease by interviewing all of the people who are newly confirmed to be infected and finding all the people that they can remember interacting with and calling all those people and telling them to self-isolate and get tested. And it's this big sort of sleuthing operation that happens. And health departments are doing that. And it's an extremely important part of the fight against the pandemic right now. But there's a concern that because the virus seems to be transmitted by people before they even have symptoms, potentially for several days, contact tracing has to happen really fast. Because by the time you actually confirm that somebody is infected, the people that they've been in contact with are about to start spreading the virus further. So the thinking with the contact tracing app is that if you can automatically log all of the times that phones come close to each other, then if the owner of one of those phones tests positive, any of the phones that had an interaction can get a warning. And that would sort of supplement what human contact tracers are doing and speed up that process and maybe even identify contacts that a person is not going to remember in an interview like somebody that you just happen to be close to, a stranger, someone you sat on the train with. Is this intended to replace contact tracing, replace all these human sleuths that are tracing people down and, and asking them to self-isolate? It's not intended to do that. And I think 
a lot of people are really concerned about the perception that an app is just going to sort of save us mm. from this virus and eliminate the need for health departments to do all of this investigative work. Most people I talked to did not think that that is realistic. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about why it's not possible to replace that with an app? One of the reasons that I heard from people is that a health department and a sort of a contact tracing effort is about a lot more than just sending people a text message, Mm. right? It's not just about pinging everyone who might be sick. If somebody is potentially infected, there's a lot of other follow-up that needs to happen to connect that person to testing, but also to to facilitate a quarantine. It's not easy to self-isolate. And in some cases, it's a big sacrifice. And so if you're asking somebody to do that, my understanding is that a lot of contact tracing is also just connecting people to the resources that they might need in order to self-isolate and explaining how and why they should be doing that. Even things like delivering groceries or if they're not safe at home, figuring out a place for them to be during a quarantine. Going back to the apps now, it's important for them to be able to detect that one phone is near another phone. And you can do this. Some are doing this with GPS and some are doing it with Bluetooth. What's the difference there? Yeah, there are some apps that rely on GPS to track the actual location of each person and figure out the places that they've recently been. And those apps can be really effective, especially if you want to know sites where many people might have ended up becoming infected. But that's not a very effective way to gauge small distances between individual phones. And for that, a lot of people are turning to Bluetooth, these sort of low energy radio signals that pass between phones because these sort of digital handshakes can be a little bit more precise in that way. Mm -hmm. Say if you're obeying this six feet, two meters spacing, is the Bluetooth that accurate? The problem with Bluetooth is that it's not designed to measure distances, right? You're just sort of inferring the distance from the strength of a signal that's getting to you. And lots of things can happen to that signal along the way. There can be a wall, there can be a barrier, it can bounce off of different things. And so, yeah, there there has been some preliminary research so far that really demonstrates this is not a perfect way to measure distance and that the designers of these apps are going to need to be careful and potentially really conservative in what they define as a contact if they want to avoid people getting a bunch of alerts that are essentially false alarms. Right. So if someone has the phone in their pocket and they wander around a grocery store maintaining the perfect distance, the phone might still interpret itself as being closer or further than from different people. Yeah, there might be errors in either direction, actually. Yeah. Um, false alarms and, you know, missed contacts. Mm-hmm. One thing from some researchers at Trinity College um, that I thought was interesting was they just compared if someone had a phone in their pocket and they were sitting across the table from each other and if they had their phones on the table and they were sitting the same distance from each other. <laughs> The pocket phones thought they were a lot further apart, right? Yeah. So even just little habits, they're going to need to account for these types of things. What are the next steps? So say you have wandered through a grocery store, come really close to a person, that person later tests positive and your phone has the app on it. Does it get alerted? You get alerted if that person tests positive? Yeah, there are different designs and some of them will are designed to alert you if that person reports symptoms. You get sort of a mild alert. And then if that person actually confirms positive, they have a way of officially confirming that in the app so that a more serious alert can be sent. And this is a little bit nitty gritty here, but how does the app know that someone has been infected? Do they have to go in and upload the status? And then 
Is your phone constantly scanning the world looking for those infected people? My understanding is that many systems, you're going to have some sort of formal sort of validation code that a health department is going to give you because you got a positive test. That's how you tell the apps. You can't just randomly say, oh, I have COVID and I put it in the app. Right. Because you can imagine how various problems could arise from that. And then on the other side, are you always uploading your location to this app? Is the app always know where you are or is it only looking to see if someone has been a place that you have been? Neither of those with a Bluetooth app, actually. Wow. Bluetooth is not recording where you are at all. So there's nothing about your location being logged, even on your own phone. Mm-hmm. All that you're logging is the anonymous ID number of phones that have come close to you. So all the what's being shared in, in these various app designs are phone IDs that may or may not have come close to each other. There are privacy concerns about this, even if your location isn't necessarily being shared with the app or with other people plugged into this network. Can you give some examples of those? Yeah, it took me a little while to get my head around this too, but I, I, think, I, I think I have now. Huh. There are different amounts of information that you can upload to a central server, a health department from your phone, even with a an app that doesn't track location at all. You could upload your own ID when you're infected, right? Or you could upload your ID and also the IDs of the contacts that have been logged in your phone, right? And that may seem like sort of a silly technical detail, but there's a big difference in terms of what health officials would have access to. In one scenario, they would just have a list of infected phone IDs. And in the other, they would have this whole network basically like a social network of all of the interactions between these anonymized phones. And so some privacy advocates are saying that we should not be uploading that entire network because there might be ways to to sort of misuse or extend the reach of what governments are doing or hack that information that if we can avoid doing that, we should. This next question kind of crosses from privacy concerns. I could see people avoiding installing these apps because they have those kinds of concerns, but also people, you know, just aren't very compliant in general. They forget they're busy. They have other things to do. Is there a saturation level that you want to reach for one of these apps to be effective at the county level, at the country level? That's a big question. And it's one that people have been trying to address with modeling studies so far, just how many people need to download and run the app for it to actually catch some meaningful number of interactions. Because of course, it only catches an interaction if both people in the interaction have the app running. So there's been sort of a number floating around out there that 60% of the population has to download an app for it to quote unquote work or for it to be useful. And that comes from a modeling study that was trying to see at what point an app alone could basically sort of break the epidemic, bring down the reproductive number of the virus so that it controls the epidemic. And that number was 60%. But some of the feedback I got when I was working on this story is that 60% is not a magic number. There are, there's a level of uptake below 60% where an app could still be catching a lot of interaction, even maybe preventing infections and saving lives. Someone told me that once you get into the double digits of uptake, it might be already meaningful. Um, it's just something we're going to need to keep exploring. Is there an app that's reached that level, that 60% level in one of these countries? Not that I know of. I know that some of these apps are still sort of in pilot programs, but a lot of people are looking to Singapore, which was a very early adopter of an app. And I believe that they've gotten to about a quarter of their population using the app. Mm -hmm. You said even double digits, bare double digits might be successful in helping curb the pandemic. But even if all goes well, we're all cooperative, we're all sharing info, we're all installing these apps. 
how can we tell if they're working? How can we tell if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing? One of the simplest ways I think that health departments can check on that question is just to see if the people who are getting notifications end up getting sick. So that's going to be a big initial test is this so-called secondary attack rate, where with some apps, you'll be able to look at everyone who got a notification and see how many of them ended up reporting symptoms in the app or ended up getting confirmed positive. And if that roughly matches the secondary attack rate of traditional contact tracing, that would be a good sign, right? At least you're catching the same percentage of sick people as this other system. Is that enough to say apps are working for us? That's not sort of the big be-all, end-all question, right? The big answer would be that somehow you could show that the app in itself changed the rate at which the virus is spreading, actually brought down the number of new infections. And that's something that people are thinking about. People are thinking about ways to do sort of randomized trials where some people are using the app, other groups are not using the app, and, and sort of watch what happens. But those are, as you can imagine, really complicated and difficult and confusing types of studies to run. So another possibility would just be to try and find groups, either demographic groups or geographic areas that naturally have different levels of app use Mm -hmm. and sort of track them and try to see how much you can attribute to the use of the app. Did you install some of these on your phone to see how they work? I haven't done it, but I really don't think the thing about these apps is that we need a message about which one to do if we're all going to do it together, right? (laughs) Right. It's like podcasting, um, right? Do you have iTunes? Do you have Stitcher? Do you have, (laughs) which app do you have? And then can they talk to each other? And if they can't, wow, what is the point? Right. So my personal reluctance has been that I want to download one that I know is going to have enough uptake to actually catch some interactions. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, Sarah. Kelly Servick is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to her story on contact tracing apps and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Edward Greger about the costs and benefits of sea otters returning to their native habitats. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. People have displaced apex predators in many ecosystems. We've hunted them to protect ourselves or our livestock for their fur or for fun. But there are many consequences to changing which organism sits on the top of the food web. And top carnivores can have outsized effects. So what happens when we try to bring them back? And as this paper we're going to discuss today asks, what are the costs and benefits to bringing back these apex predators? Edward Greger is here to talk us through it. Hi, Ed. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So surprisingly, the apex predator we're going to talk about today is the sea otter. Definitely not what I had in mind when I think top carnivore. What do sea otters eat and where do they sit on their food web? Well, sea otters are um, the smallest marine mammal, but also one of the most voracious. They feed primarily in coastal systems where they eat uh, urchins and other important invertebrates like Dungeness crab, gooey duck clams, and also uh, smaller things like beach clams. 
even though sea otters are on the increase now, there was a big decline in their numbers. What happened to cause this decrease and now to bring them back? Well, sea otters were a key part of the uh, coastal ecosystem in, in the North Pacific for years. And in fact, they coexisted with indigenous peoples for a long time. They were symbolic of affluence. The chiefs used to wear sea otter pelts and pelts were traded as a valuable commodity among coastal communities. As first the whalers made their way around the world and then the fur traders, the maritime fur trade ended up decimating the populations of sea otters around their range. This maritime fur trade was most active in the late 19th century. And by the time sea otters were protected by international treaty in 1911, there were fewer than 2,000 left. This is from an original population of as many as 300,000. They just have been gradually increasing on their own or have they been helped by conservationists? Well, the remaining populations were pretty hard to find. They were up in, um, in the Aleutian Islands and in Prince William Sound up in Alaska. Some well-meaning ecologists with the Fish and Wildlife Service and also with the Canadian uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans thought that uh, they could be reintroduced to previous parts of their range. So they were reintroduced to parts of the Pacific Northwest here in Southeast Alaska, Washington, and Oregon in the early 1970s. And with the exception of the Oregon population, these otters were very happy to be back in their old habitat, and they've been increasing and expanding their range ever since. Not everybody is a huge fan of that. For example, they compete with fisheries for shellfish like clams and urchins. Is this in your paper where you call them ocean rats? Is that <laughs> that is not in our paper, but that, <laughs> but that is a term that's been applied to them yeah. uh, by, by the coastal fishermen. Yeah. Okay. So this is where your study comes in. Here we are in the Pacific Northwest where sea otters are being cute, cracking open shells with their rocks, holding hands, floating with their furry babies on their bellies. <laughs> sea, sea otters are coming back. Some people like it and some people don't. It's affecting a lot of different things. And your paper focuses on how you can weigh these different impacts. What did you evaluate? What did you take into consideration when you were looking at the effect of these animals on the local ecosystem? The things we considered are the ones that were sort of most closely related to the effects mm -hmm. of the sea otters. So obviously the costs to invertebrate fisheries, also, one of the real benefits, I mean, you mentioned how people see them as really cute uh, little furry animals, and they are. Tourism actually is, gets a big boost from sea otters recovering. For the tourism operators, it's actually a big benefit because sea otters are around most of the year. They're a lot easier to see and more predictable to see than some of the large whales that people come and visit. So they do provide a nice addition to the sort of portfolio of animals that tourism operators can see. That's a human side of things. That's what's going on with fisheries and what's going on with tourism. But you also see effects on animals living their lives in the ocean or on the shore. That's right, Sarah. And, and that's the sort of second part that we looked at in terms of the costs and benefits. And really, this is just a benefit from an ecosystem service perspective. A key part of the trophic cascade, as we call it, that happens when sea otters recover in an area is that by eating a lot of the urchins in the area, it allows kelp forests to recover. And kelp forests, it turns out, are a really productive part of the system. They put a lot of food into the bottom of the food web, and they also get washed out by storms and end up 
at least part of the kelp forests end up uh, sequestering carbon at the bottom of the ocean. So those are the two sort of ecological benefits that we tried to value to compare with the tourism and the fisheries. What I found really interesting was how these carnivores, these top predators, have such a big impact on the ecosystems they're part of. I think about reintroducing wolves, for example, particularly on the plants where you don't really think about them having, you know, a big interaction with, say, kelp or with grasslands or with trees. You often get these sorts of unexpected effects. As you mentioned, with the wolf reintroduction, nobody anticipated rivers changing the course of their flow because of the impacts that the wolves would have on their predators in that system, you know, just by moving the grazing away from the water. In the same way here, the big effect is caused by a real change in the structure of these coastal systems where with urchins in the system, there's very few of these large canopy kelps in there. These are the kelps that you see floating on the surface. They make these big forests when they're not being mowed down, and those forests provide not only the primary production, the nutritional subsidy that we, we talked about in our paper, but also they provide places for young animals to hide from predators, so they create more habitat for uh, all sorts of species, and they also make it a lot easier for the settlement of the eggs and the larvae of a lot of marine species to settle out so it actually increases the reproduction of a lot of coastal species. How were you able to turn this into basically money? You're able to turn tourism into money, which makes sense, and the fishery stuff, but also you were able to look at the cost involved or the benefit involved of the regeneration of the kelp forests. There are studies that we could combine. And, uh, you know, that was one of the interesting parts of this work is the way we had to synthesize the ecology, the oceanography and the economics. We started by doing some field work. We measured what we could in the shore systems in an area on the west coast of Vancouver Island where the otters were reintroduced. And so they've been there for decades and the kelp forests have recovered, along with all the uh, associated fish and things that live in the kelp forests. And we compared that to an area at the south end of Vancouver Island, where sea otters have not yet reestablished themselves. And that gave us a good idea of how the ecosystems changed. And we measured the biomass of not only the kelp forests, but uh, the urchins and the gooey ducks and the clams. And from that, we got a good idea of how what we call the ecosystem service providers, the things that actually generate the benefits, how those biomasses changed. Mm -hmm. How are you able to quantify that? As you said, Sarah, the numbers around fisheries and to a lesser extent tourism are reasonably easy to capture, but these ecosystem service benefits are a little bit tougher. So to do the carbon sequestration, we had to estimate how much of that extra kelp that was produced got washed into the deep ocean. Mm -hmm. And we used some available carbon market pricing to estimate what that benefit would be, the value of that benefit. What were you able to see about cost benefit in this scenario where the otters were introduced again? Well, what we found was that unsurprisingly, because they consume most of the urchins and the Dungeness crab and also a fair proportion of the gooey ducks, we found that uh, the commercial fishery would lose somewhere on the order of $7 million a year Ooh. in direct landed value. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty significant amount for what is actually a small geographic area on the west coast of the island. 
But there must be a positive side. Right? Oh, of course, there's a positive side. <laughs> no, we were, we were pleased to see that those positives are really quite large. These are a bit difficult to estimate because there are some uncertainties in a modeling exercise. But mm -hmm. uh, the tourism benefit was really quite large. It was over $40 million a year, potentially. And that's based on a willingness to pay survey. We asked visitors to the area how much more they'd be willing to pay if they would see sea otters on a wildlife tour. Mm -hmm. From a carbon sequestration perspective, this is the kelp that would get washed to the deep ocean. That was on the order of two or three million dollars, which is a low estimate based on other studies. But we tried to be conservative with our numbers. And then you also mentioned fin fisheries. So this is other kinds of fish that might be able to be commercially harvested. That's right. And I mean, all things being equal, the nutritional subsidy that the sea otters provide indirectly by increasing kelp was almost $10 million a year. So that in and of itself has the potential to offset the losses to the invertebrate fisheries. So you don't have to rely on tourism for this to actually have an upside. No, no, not at all. But the burden of this cost isn't distributed equally. So some people are going to win and some people are going to lose. Is that something that you have to take into account when doing these kinds of calculations? Absolutely, you do when you make the decisions about what to do with these systems moving forward, because all, all of our coastal systems are managed in some way. So there's always a question of how to manage the system so that the costs and the benefits are a little bit more equitably distributed. That is a really important caveat about our study. It's something that's really quite difficult to take into account in a study like this, which really focused on the monetary side of it. So economically, we have trade-offs between shellfish and finfish, potentially. And we also have trade-offs between the fishery and a totally unrelated sector, the tourism industry. So those costs and benefits don't accrue to the same people. But perhaps more importantly is the impact on coastal communities, which in a lot of cases, they depend on being able to catch their own food because a lot of them are far away from grocery stores. And so the loss to some of these coastal communities of the invertebrates and the crab and the clams that they're used to eating, those are really big losses because in a lot of cases, these communities now have to rely on imported food. Decisions about returning predators to their ecosystems are being made all over the world. Has it been very difficult to do this? Is this something that needs to be solved? Oh, absolutely. No, this is something that needs to be solved. And even though our analysis isn't necessarily comprehensive, it really shows the value of broadening our understanding. Because before we did this work, the situation was perceived by many people as very black and white. It was either a conservation success story because otters were recovering and, oh, aren't they so cute and we, this is a great thing. Or it was they're rats of the ocean and they are eating up all our resources and this is just a horrible thing. But by broadening people's perspective, we hope that this is going to make it easier for managers to come up with alternatives, for coastal communities to see what alternatives they might have. And really, it, it almost makes the pie a little bit bigger. There's more choices really available for managers and for people. Thank you so much, Ed. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Edward Greger is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Resources, Environment and Sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, 
write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you can find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.